0: Well, come thou long-expected Jesus. Um, are you getting excited for Christmas? I know that Rachel and I, this year, I don't know what it's been about this year in particular, but both of us, I feel like, have longed for Christmas in ways that we haven't in past years. And when we sing these songs of, of come thou long-expected Jesus or oh come, O oh come, Emmanuel, these are the songs of a people who are longing for Christmas to come, who are longing for Christ to return. I mean, these words are the words of a watching and waiting people, of a people who are remembering what God has done in the past and anticipating the glory of what he's going to do in the future. And I love that video because I think it beautifully points out the reality that the story of Jesus' birth doesn't just come out of nowhere, but that God has been at work from the very beginning, from before time, orchestrating this story that culminates um, in Jesus' birth, but that it's not an afterthought. And that video began with a depiction of creation; the world is created, and then soon you see Adam and Eve. Which, that wholeness and perfection and beauty that existed is short-lived. As Adam and Eve believe the lies of the serpent and turn against God, they turn against the one who loved them completely, who provided for them in every way, who knew them intimately. But God, in his great mercy and justice, yet doesn't destroy them. In his great compassion, he sets into motion a plan where he can remain just and yet be the justifier of sinners. And we get a glimpse of that with with Noah and the ark as God preserves his people in judgment. And then the next thing that we saw there in the video was with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, who would be the father of the nation from whom Jesus would be born. And even Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his only son, gives us a bit of a taste, a foreshadowing of what Jesus, how the Father would offer Jesus, his son, one day. And then we saw that scene morph into Joseph the great-grandson of, uh, of Abraham, the grandson of Isaac, the son of Joseph who was betrayed and sold into slavery, and yet whose slavery God used for good to preserve his people in the midst of famine. And then we saw Moses who was born as a slave into slavery, and yet who's elevated to the highest place of leadership to lead God's people out of bondage into the promised land, and then we saw Joshua leading the people into this land that they had so longed for, that they had been promised for, anticipating that not even the walls of Jericho could stop them from entering into. And then from there, we saw David, the boy king, the shepherd who would become king, who would be a man after God's own heart, whose victory over Goliath would foreshadow the one day when Jesus would triumph finally over sin and his victory would become his people's victory. And then we saw Daniel, faithful Daniel, who was a faithful presence with God's people while they were exiled in Babylon, who's in the lion's den, and yet God preserves him there. And then it was Jonah who sort of stood for all of the prophets. Jonah, who even though he reluctantly, in fact, fled the other way, still is used by God to take the message of God's plan of rescue beyond the nation of Israel. In the story of Jonah, we get a hint that God is doing something that's bigger even than just Israel. He goes to the pagan nation of Nineveh to proclaim the good news that there is something that God is doing that's for all people. And then after 400 years of silence, God speaks again. He sends an angel, Gabriel, to an unwed virgin named Mary in a little backwater village of Nazareth in Galilee and gives her the stunning news that she is going to be carrying the very son of God. And then somehow Joseph believes the dream um, who, you know, he would have every reason to think that Mary's been unfaithful to him and yet he, he chooses to believe that the, the angel and the dream has spoken truth that Mary is in fact carrying the son of God and he remains faithful to her And then Caesar's decree goes out that everyone has to return to their hometown to be registered and counted and taxed. And so then this ensures that Jesus, the Messiah, is born in the prophesied place of Bethlehem. But this also means that Jesus is born in a place where there's no room for him, he ends up being born in this cave surrounded by animals. You see, God was at work for good in every single one of these details, carrying out his plan from Noah all the way up to Mary and Joseph. But I wonder, have you ever wondered this? I wonder if Mary and Joseph thought that God was at work for their good during this time. I mean, yeah, they had seen some miraculous things. They had angels talking to them. They had these dreams. But but in those long months of unwed pregnancy in a culture that really frowned on that, during those exhausting, uncomfortable day-long, that day, those days-long trip to Bethlehem, during Mary's giving birth in these kind of deplorable circumstances in a cave, do you ever wonder if they thought, God, how is this really you working for good? You see, in all of these stories from Noah to to Mary, God was working for the good of his children, even when they didn't understand it, even when they didn't see it. God has been orchestrating a plan, a rescue plan that would maximize his glory and our good from the very beginning. But what does all of this have to do with you and with me? Well, when we peel back, when we kind of pull back the curtain on the manger scene, as we've been doing all through Advent, looking at Romans chapter 8, what we see is that God had us. He had you in mind in the manger. You have been a part of the plan all along. In all this planning from before the foundation of the world, God has had you in mind And for the past four weeks, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, exploring this conspiracy of love that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been working together before the foundation of the world to enact this rescue plan to save people from their sin, to rescue, redeem, restore, not only his people, but the good world that he has made. And we have seen throughout these last weeks that Christmas means there's no condemnation. That Christmas means that slaves become sons. That Christmas means that we won't have to wait forever. And that Christmas means that we're not alone, as we saw last week. And this week, as we look at Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30, we're going to see that Christmas means that God is always working for the good of his children. That Christmas means that God is always working for the good of his children. If you have a Bible with you this morning, and there's some in the racks, the P-Racks there as well, or if you have it on your smartphone, I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter eight. And uh, I want to read this section of scripture for us this morning. Um, this is Romans, if you're newer to the Bible, Romans uh, is in the New Testament. It comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, and there's the book of Acts, and then Romans. So Romans chapter eight, and then let's read... Uh, Verses 28 through 30. Hear God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's words to us this morning. And as we are in this time of waiting, this time of groaning, of longing, of looking forward to Christ's return, Advent is about remembering Christ's first coming and anticipating his second coming. Paul gives us the assurance of two things. One, that God is always at work for good and two, that God's great good, the great good that he has planned for us, is ultimately our great delight. So those are the two things we're going to see as we look at this text this morning, that God is always at work for good, and that God's good is ultimately our great delight. So we look at verse uh, 28 there, the first verse. It says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, after John 3.16, I think Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this verse is probably one of the most well-known and often quoted verses. But it's also one of the verses in the Bible that I think is is um, most often misunderstood and misapplied, particularly during times of suffering and difficulty. And so I want us to take some time with verse 28 in particular and just really slow down. And look at it carefully together. Um, And actually we're just going to kind of go phrase by phrase. And just kind of unpack what is Paul saying in verse 28 in particular. So first Paul writes in in verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God. And we're going to just pause right there. We're going to get to those who love God part in just a moment. But first I want to focus on the fact that he says we know. I mean there's a lot of things that we don't know that are uncertain in our world. In fact, Paul just said in the previous verses that we looked at last week, we don't know how to pray. We don't often know even what to pray, and that's where the Spirit comes and helps us. There's lots of things we don't know, but Paul says there is something that we do know. He says we know that God is always working for the good of his children one thing that we know is that God is always at work for the good of his children. That language of knowing is the, is the rich language of personal, familial knowing. The language of family is all throughout Romans chapter 8. Earlier in the chapter, Paul talks about us being adopted as sons and daughters. And in this text, we talk about having Jesus as our older brother. He's the firstborn among many brothers. This knowing is, is a, a knowing that comes in relationship, that comes from assurance of, of being in this family the God that we've been adopted into. So we know because we are children, we're in relationship with him, we can know that our father is always working for our good. So that's the, the we know part there. And then next Paul says, in all things, he adds this little phrase, all things, and we know that for, all, that for those who love God, all things work together together. Now, we need to ask the question, what are the all things that Paul is referring to in this, in this phrase? Well, it probably, at least he's referring to, if you were to look back in verse 18 of, of Romans chapter 8, he's at least referring to those sufferings. In Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 18, he says, Now, the glory that we're going to experience, is, experience in the future isn't worth comparing with our present sufferings, the sufferings that we have in this present age. And so Paul's point is at least that God is at work, that the all things includes the sufferings that we're experiencing during this present time. But it probably goes even further than that to include not just the sufferings that we experience, but also all of the good gifts that God gives us. All of the scope of all things truly is all things. When you begin to look at how Paul uses that little phrase, and he loves to use it in other places, in the book of Colossians and Ephesians, that all things truly Includes everything the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. So, God is able to use even suffering and hardship as well as comfort and contentment for our good in the glory of His grace. He's even able to redeem and transform our sin, our failure, our rebellion into something good. And if we look ahead in what we're going to look at in next week, but if we look ahead a little bit to verses 35 through 37, we see that Paul uses the language of all things again right here in this chapter. And he uses it to refer to tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, even death. Paul says in Romans 8, 37, in all of those things that I've just listed, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So all things truly includes all things. Hardship, suffering, the good, the bad. There isn't a single thing that God can't use for the good of his children. Not one. And then Paul continues, he adds, so he says, we know, we have this confidence that for those who love God, all things, which we said means all things, truly all things, work together. And that little phrase, work together, actually translates a single word in the original language. And there's some debate about whether it should be translated work together or just work, that in all things God is working, whether he's working them together or if he's just working in all things. Um, But the point in, in either way, if you were to take it just as work or works together, Um, The case is the same, that God is at work in and through everything to bring about his good plan. That anything that happens, he can weave into this grand plan of redemption that he's working for his children. There's some great verses in Proverbs that just point this out. Proverbs uh, 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, Proverbs 19.21 makes a very similar point. It says, many are the plans of a person's mind, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You see, you have a plan. I have a plan. Um, People have plans for good. People have plans for evil and for harm. We're all making plans. But none of their plans, not mine, not yours, not theirs, can ever thwart God's good plan and purpose. Nothing can thwart his good plan and purpose. So next Paul adds, for our good. Now Paul doesn't just say all things work together. He says that they work together for good. Now what is the good that Paul is describing? Because it's important to understand now when we think about good, what does that mean? What does he mean? Well, he certainly doesn't mean that all things are good. We can't misread Paul and say, well, everything ultimately ends up being good. One of the things that's clear throughout Romans chapter 8 is that evil really is evil and that God is working to defeat it. So there's no sense of any kind of equivocation between what is actually good or evil. What Paul is saying is that God can work all things, even those things that are evil. He can work them for good. But we have to be careful to let God define what is good for us. Often we define good uh, in terms of our happiness or our comfort, our contentment. But as we, and we're going to press into this a little later on, but as we look more and more into this text, we see that our ultimate good is our conformity to Christ. That is the good that God is working for. Our conformity, our becoming like his son. The good that God is working all things uh, together to achieve is that we would become like his son, Jesus There's actually a great quote about this in the conversation starter, in the welcome uh, folder that you were handed on your way in. There's a quote on the back from Douglas Moo, and I'm not going to focus on that, but I would encourage you to read it this week. He does a great job of unpacking how does God's good um, work itself out in the context of this text. You know, so often we end up being deceived about what's really good for us. Um, We don't often have the wisdom to see clearly what is the best thing for us. Uh, Tim Keller gives this great illustration where he he talks about, you know, when you, looking back on your own life, you realize that you don't even ultimately want yourself in charge of your life. Because if you think back, well, do what I want my 15-year-old self running my life? well, I look at the decisions my 15-year-old self was making and say, there's no way I want to let my 15-year-old self run my life now, right? But what, and his point is, but at each life stage, we look back at who we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and we say, man, that person didn't have it figured out and they made a lot of mistakes. Well, what makes us think that in this moment that we have it all figured out, that we somehow have arrived? We need someone else to be in control, to be making these decisions, to be defining what's best for us because we just don't always know what's the best thing for us. So Paul concludes then in verse 28, and he says, for those who are called according to his purpose, those who are called according to his purpose are the same ones that are the ones he's referred to as the ones who have been adopted earlier in the chapter. Those are the same ones who earlier in the verse love him. These are all the same group of people. Those who have been adopted as his children who love him are those are the ones who have been called according to his purpose. You see, this promise isn't just for anyone and everyone. It's specifically for those who love him who have been adopted as his children, who have trusted him by faith, who are being called according to his purpose. These are the ones who have been reconciled through Christ to the Father, who are back in relationship with the Father again. They have been rescued, redeemed, forgiven. They are the ones for whom there is no condemnation. They are the ones who are his sons and daughters. If you have been adopted and forgiven, then you have been called according to his purpose. You are his child. You love him. Now Romans 8.28 is an incredible verse. And we just spent a brief time. Just kind of unpacking each one of those pieces of it. And it is contain some of the greatest promises that we have as followers of Christ, as believers. But it's often, I think, misapplied or abused in how it's applied. I'll never forget how one of my uh, college professors um, in, a, in a class on Romans actually described this verse. He, t- he was this really kind of graphic description. He said, often with Romans 8.28, people sort of rip it bleeding from its context. That's what he said. They just kind of yank it out of Romans chapter 8 as a whole, and they sort of toss it like a hand grenade into the hospital room or to the situation when someone's hurting and just sort of then run the other direction. We can use it as an excuse to say, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help this person. Uh, God's going to work it all for good. See ya. You know, and kind of run out of there. When really the first thing that God calls us to often is not to speak, but just to be present with people who are suffering. To be with them, to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. To be present, to cry with them, to remind them through our love and presence that God is present and loves them as well. We can't end up using Romans eight twenty eight like sort of this sort of blunt object that we just sort of hurl at the grieving, saying, oh, well, hopefully this will make you feel better. Rather, we must love people who are hurting, listen to them, cry with them, be with them. Another trouble we often face with Romans eight twenty eight is the question of evil. How can a good God use evil for his purposes? How can he even incorporate this into his plan in any kind of way? Well, again, it's clear in the context of all of Romans 8 that there's no equivocation about what evil is, that evil really is evil. And the whole thrust of Romans chapter 8 is that Jesus has come to ultimately triumph over evil. And even though we don't always understand it, the reason that he has come is to triumph over it. We know that much. Romans is clear about that. But we must remember that ultimately it's our rebellion that introduced evil into the world in the first place. And God, because of who he is and his goodness and greatness, is able to take that evil and begin to work it for good. But it doesn't make him the author of evil. And it doesn't make him evil for redeeming these bad situations. We have to leave some mystery and some tension around this. I mean, ultimately, if we have a God who's big enough um, to be doing something about evil, and he is, he has sent his son to die on a cross and he's in the midst of of triumphing over it, we also have to believe that he's big enough to be able to do things that we don't fully comprehend or understand. So even we don't understand how he's working, it doesn't mean that he isn't or that he can't be. But maybe he's just too big that he's so much higher than the us at times that we don't understand fully his plan. We don't see the beginning from the end in the ways that he does. So while Romans eight twenty eight is clear that God is working all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose, it doesn't promise, there's no promise here that we'll understand how that's happening. There's no promise that we'll welcome it or be excited about it. Um, There's no promise that it will result in our present comfort and ease. Um, Often it results in just the opposite. The only thing it promises is that it will be for good ultimately. Namely that good being God's glory and our conformity to Christ. This is why it's important to remember when we read, like we read from those verses in Proverbs earlier, that God's plan isn't always our plan that his ways aren't always our ways, that we can't fully understand how he's working at all times. And that's why it's important to remember where we're at in this story, that we are in the middle of the story. We're not at the end yet. And, you know, if you think about trilogies in particular, that middle chapter of the trilogy. That middle installment is always the darkest, right? Whether it's Star Wars, you, the Empire Strikes Back, it starts off in the dark place, and it ends in a darker place. The Two Towers in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it starts off in a dark place and ends up in a place of desperation. But those aren't the end of the story, right? You, the Jedi returns, the King returns in the return of the Jedi, in the return of the King, in those films, and those stories. The, the story isn't done yet, and our story isn't done yet either. That our King is coming again also. So we have to remember when things look dark, when it seems like God isn't at work, that we are in that sort of that third chapter of the trilogy, that the, the redemption isn't fully done yet, but that our king is coming. He is coming. Christmas means that God is always at work for the good of his children. Always. We've seen in Romans eight twenty eight that God is at work for our good. And in verses 29 and 30, we're also going to see how he's at work, that what he's at work for is ultimately our great delight. You see, the highest good that God has for us is that we would become the people we were created to be. And that when we become the people that we were created to be, that we find the great rest, contentment, wholeness that we've always longed for. That we so desperately long for. We find the delight that we have so longed for. And if you look at verse 29, Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and this is the key part, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The whole purpose, the whole plan is that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. Everything that God is at work doing in our redemption is to bring us into conformity with the image of his son that we might look like Jesus, our brother. I love that language because we've been adopted as his sons and daughters. Jesus now stands as our older brother and the goal is that we would become like him. C.S. Lewis has a marvelous passage toward the end of his book, Mere Christianity, and I just want to read this for you. He sums up the whole of Christianity this way. He writes, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this. That we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, Lewis says, we shall be sharing in a life which was begotten, not made, which has always existed and always will exist. Christ is the son of God. If we share this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the father as he does. And then he says, Jesus came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. Every Christian, Lewis says, is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Every Christian, he says, is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is nothing else. The whole goal of Jesus becoming one of us, becoming a man in the incarnation that he might die on a cross is that we might become what he is. Athanasius or uh, Ignatius said once that Jesus has become what we are, so that we might become what he is. That we might become like Christ. Now, scholars um, point out that some verses mean that if we we're looking at this verse, this idea of predestination, foreknowledge—these are kind of big concepts. And so, what's going on here? Well, it's important to know that when we look at this. That what Paul is laying out for us is sort of three stages. That this great purpose, this great plan of redemption that God has been working out was designed before time, that it's being orchestrated in time, and that ultimately it is secure for all time. This plan was designed before time, before the foundation of the world. It's being orchestrated in time, and that ultimately it's secure for all time. And we see those each one of those in, in this uh, set of verses here. So first we see that this plan was designed before time. Paul writes that God foreknew those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And this language of foreknowing basically means that before God created the world, he knew and loved those who would be adopted as his children. Isn't that incredible? That even before he made the world, he knew and loved those who he would adopt as his children. And again, this idea of foreknowing or of knowing implies intimacy, relationship, choosing. It isn't merely sort of an intellectual knowledge. It's a loving relational knowledge. God lovingly foreknows his children before the foundation of the world. And then Paul goes on, he says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And the language of predestined simply means that he determined the end at the beginning. So he knew the goal from the very beginning is that we would become like Christ. That was what the plan was from the very beginning. He set that out, the predestination pieces, he set that from the beginning. That those he foreknew, the goal from the very beginning was always that they would become like his son. That they would be like their older brother, Jesus And predestination here um, isn't uh, necessarily something that we can easily understand, um, but that we trust. And again, there's multiple ways that people understand this within church history. Some scholars believe these verses mean that before the beginning of the world, God chose certain people to receive his gift of salvation. Other people will believe that God, no, he looked into the time and he realized who would choose him. And so then he put his mark on them. However you understand this language of foreknowledge and predestination, what is clear is this, that God's purpose for his people was not an afterthought. It was settled before the foundation of the world. However we understand these concepts, what is clear is that God's purpose was not an afterthought, but it was planned before the foundation of the world. If you believe in Christ, you can rejoice in the fact that God has always known and loved you, even before the foundation of the world. Now, we see that God is the author and the initiator of this conspiracy of love. He doesn't wait for us to take the first step. He is at work planning, designing, taking the initiative, even before we were born. So this plan that was designed before time, he orchestrates in time. He has called us into relationship with him. This is the language of those that he predestined, he also called Everyone he foreknew, he predestined. Everyone he predestined, he called. And it is precisely those whom he foreknown and predestined who are also the ones that he calls. This calling is when we become aware of God's work in our life. And it's a call that's fully effective. That if we've been predestined and foreknown, that when he calls us, we will respond to that call with great joy. When God calls those whom he foreknows and predestines, those whom he's known and loved, they respond with great joy. And they, it seems at times that we're resisting or, or pushing back, but ultimately if you have been foreknown and predestined, that then you, when you're called, you will respond. And the God who calls also justifies. This language of justification is law court language. Again, Paul's been using this all throughout the book of Romans. And it has to do with this process by where God is able to declare those who are guilty, innocent. On the basis of what Jesus has done. The finished work of Christ. And then finally Paul assures his readers. That the plan that God has designed before time. That he's orchestrating in time. Will be secure for all time. He says those whom he justified. He also glorified. And what I love about that. How he says that. Is he uses a past tense. He says those whom he justified. Past tense. He also glorified. He makes it a past action. But in reality, we have yet to experience our full glorification. Glorification is this day when we will become fully like Christ, when the creation will be released from its bondage to decay. But Paul is so sure that that is going to happen that he talks about it like it's in the past. He says, "This is so. Your glorification is so sure. It's as sure as done. It's as sure as yesterday." Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you may be thinking, is Paul missing something here? Often when he uses this language of justification and glorification, he puts another term in there, the term sanctification, which just means the process of becoming like Christ. And I I wondered as I was wrestling with this text, why doesn't he mention that here? Why doesn't he mention this sort of ongoing process of becoming more like Christ? And as I was pondering over that, I I, I ran across a commentator, F.F. Bruce, who said this, and I love how he puts this. He says the difference between sanctification, this process of becoming like Christ, and glorification, the process of being like Christ, finally, he says is one of degree, not kind. He says sanctification is the process of conformity to the mind or image of Christ here and now. And glorification is the process, is the perfect conformity to Christ then and there. Sanctification is glory begun, and glory is sanctification begun completed. You see, we often get hung up on the challenges that we have with understanding this verse. How do we think about predestination and where does glorification fit in? We wrestle with the intellectual challenges that confront us in this verse, and there are many, but sometimes we get so hung up on those challenges. We forget to rejoice in the promise, the truth that what these verses mean is that if we have been known by God, that he will safely see us all the way through to this process of glorification that those whom he has known, that he's then called, that he has called you, that he has declared you righteous, that he will see this process coming through to completion so that your glorification can already be spoken as as if it's already done. He will do whatever it takes to get us there. So this Christmas, as you're celebrating with your family and friends, I just wanted to give a couple of ways that you can delight in the God who is always working for the good of his children. So, first, rest in the God who is always working for the good of his children. No matter what you're going through, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can trust that nothing that can happen to you, nothing that you can do can hinder the purposes that he has for you from being fulfilled. This promise brings hope to those who have been called in line with his purposes. It allows us to welcome his work no matter what. That when we see God working in his life, we know that he's ultimately working for our good purposes even when we don't understand. So when we face difficulty, suffering, we remember that there's a bigger picture. That we're in the middle of this story. That God, yes, He is working for good even when we don't fully understand it. So we can rest that God is always at work for our good. Second, we can seek the conformity that ultimately is our destiny. We need to ask the question, are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Are we becoming little Christ? As Christians, our goal is to become what we already are and what we fully will be one day. The great assurance that we have in the middle of this process is that even as we fail, as we falter, as we sin, as we doubt, as we wrestle, that God has ultimately said our glorification is secure That he is going to do whatever it takes to bring us there safely and securely. And third, it's just that we surrender to the God who's always working for the good of his children. I mean, every one of us at some level is a control freak when it comes to our lives, to our destiny. We want to control. We want to be in charge But when we confront this world where so many things are out of our control, whether it's the economy or the weather, I mean, where we were born, what family we were born into, what kind of school we went to, all of these things are ultimately so far out of our control that when we try to bring them into control, we just end up being worried and anxious and and start scrambling. However, when we're able to release control, when we surrender to the God who is in control, who has always been in control, who is always working for our best, We find that this is the pathway to freedom, to contentment, to joy. John Orberg says, Surrender to God is not passivity or abdication. Rather, surrender means that we accept and delight in the reality that God is in control. Surrender means that we accept and delight in the reality that God is in control. See, we don't always know how God is at work for our good in our lives. We don't always understand it. But we do have this assurance that how he's at work for our good in our lives is probably going to look very similar to the way in which he was at work for Jesus' good in his life. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 29. Listen to this. He says, God knew what he was doing from the beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The sun stands first in line of humanity restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. You see, Jesus' path to glory was marked with suffering from his birth in a Judean cave to his death on a Roman cross. But it culminated with a glorious resurrection and a coming kingdom And this is the path that he has now laid out for those of us, his little brothers and sisters, those of us who have been adopted as his children. But the good news is that we don't walk that path alone, that our older brother, Jesus, has pioneered it for us, that our father is working to secure us, that he's always working to make us like his son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are at work, that you have been at work from the foundation of the world, bringing us into conformity to your son, that we are secure even when the world around us is so out of control and so confusing that we have the great confidence of how you are at work, that this is not the end of the story, that there is more yet to come, that the final chapters have yet to be written. Help us to rest in that as we remember the coming of your son now in the past and anticipate his coming in the future. Pray this in Jesus' name.